It was a big week for the New England Revolution and the Kraft family as the entire world will turn its eyes to Foxborough in 2026. Hello again, everyone. I'm Mike Riley for 98.5 The Sports Hub and also the public address announcer at Gillette Stadium for the Revolution. Last week, FIFA announced Boston as a host city for FIFA World Cup in 2026, as it will also be the first time the World Cup will be played in North America since 1994. Today I'm joined by Revolution President Brian Bolello, who's also the president of Boston Soccer 2026. Brian and his committee's hard work paid off to get Gillette Stadium as a host site during the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Brian, thanks so much for being with me here today. My pleasure, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me on. All right, awesome, and this is a really exciting week for the Revs, obviously with the win last week. We'll talk about that um, in uh, just a moment, but uh, can you give us a whole little landscape here, uh, how you think the Revs are playing right now as we are 17 games through the season, midway point from where you sit in the president's office, how do you feel the 2022 season is going so far? Well, we've had a couple of different seasons, I'd say, so far. Um, certainly, I think we all feel a little bit better about how we've been playing recently than than the beginning of the year, which you know, just up on the guys. We had the, we had the Champions League competition. We picked up some injuries, and it was I think it was just really hard to get in a rhythm with different lineups, different players, um, and that was that was hard on the guys, and and certainly frustrating for everyone here. Um, but but as of late, we've uh, we've we've picked up a bunch of wins. You know, seven point week last week, which was great, and uh, I think we're starting to roll and, and playing more and getting the results that that frankly we expect. So, you know, when you look at the roster and 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 obviously our staff has been around for a few years now, we're fairly confident in what this team is capable of and what this group is capable of, and and it's good to see them, you know, really starting to achieve that. And thankfully, at home too, we've had some much better weather than the uh, front end of the schedule. Holy cow! Yeah, that was. Um, as bad as we've had to start a season weather-wise, um, but still on pace for for a record attendance year for us. So the fans have been great in supporting us, even though uh, even though particularly at the beginning of the year the weather was uh, was really really rough. Yeah. Now, now diving right into the big news of the month here, Brian. Last week, FIFA announced that Boston will be a host for the FIFA World Cup in 2026, the first World Cup here in the United States in over 30 years. Brian, you were heavily involved in this bid from the beginning. Can you describe to us the elation you must have felt on June 16th when Boston was announced? Um, it's hard to describe it. It was uh, it, it was a lot. I mean, there's so, so much work that goes into this over so many years. Um, you know, I was involved... Uh, with the bid to get the 2022 World Cup in the U.S. So, you know, for those who don't remember, the U.S. was was trying to get the 2022 World Cup and failed in that bid. So the work actually even started before the 2026 bid. It was, it was really a 2022 bid uh, was the original bid. And then um, when we didn't get that one, went back at it in 2026. So, um, you know, the first part of the whole process was actually not getting Boston in the World Cup, was getting the U.S. and ultimately it was U.S., Canada, and Mexico, uh, the World Cup of 2026. So that process as a, as a local host committee, um, you're presenting yourself as a package of cities to FIFA saying, hey, if you gave the World Cup right to North America, 
these are the types of cities that want to host, that are able to host. And we were part of that. Fortunately for us, we also had Mr. Kraft. Robert uh, was heavily involved in that process as the honorary chair of the bid. Um, so he was really instrumental in the World Cup coming to the United States, period, uh, let alone, you know, the portion of, of, of our work getting it to Boston. So I'd say the first part of that whole process was a lot of work and stress to win the World Cup for our country um, prior to, to the part where then you say, OK, all these great cities that have partnered to get the World Cup here. Well, we now have to compete against one each other, uh, one another to get the World Cup. So, again, uh, that process, you know, some of that work had already been done in terms of putting our, you know, our proposals together. But it was really honing that proposal and, and showcasing why Boston, uh, beyond any other market, uh, should be one that hosts the game. So, again, um, you know, we had a group here, great help from, you know, the state of Massachusetts, the city of Boston, and, you know, in particular, our, our Convention and Visitors Bureau here in Boston uh, put a lot of time and energy uh, behind this effort. And, again, the Kraft family were were instrumental and, and really supportive uh, in getting us games here in Boston. So, um, you know, need to, you know, sometimes that, that work gets done behind the scenes, but uh, they were they were great help. Uh, to all of us in, in getting this bid successful for Boston. And, you know, people have to have to realize, you know, the other agencies that work with us on this and, and the, the Convention of Visitors Bureau, it's not really a stadium event. Um, you know, it's a it's a month plus long event of which, you know, only four or five or six of those days are going to be here at Gillette Stadium. The rest of the event is focused around the city of Boston and all the activities that are going to be on and the and the you know half a million or so visitors that are going to come to Boston during this time period. So it's not really, it's not like a concert or a soccer friendly, another event we have here at Gillette Stadium. It's it's really about the entire month-long experience and and how that can bring a lot of energy and value and and frankly economic benefit to the greater Boston area and and those people who work in the hotel, the restaurant, the hospitality, the travel industries. Uh, it's it's a major win for for all of them. Um, and, uh, so we're just excited to be, you know, part of that effort and, and be able to help get that, that event to, uh, to our great city and our great state. Uh, those were some of my next questions there to 500,000 people you expect to be coming to the region over that time period in 2026, plus the economic boom, uh, for the hotels, tourism and so forth. So that's a big shot in the arm for everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, the estimate right now is, is, uh, half a billion dollars. Uh, in, in economic impact to, you know, to greater Boston and Massachusetts. And so, again, if you think about, you know, all those hotel rooms, all the meals, all the other travel-related stuff that folks are doing, just retail people shopping when they're in town, uh, you know, we know Boston's a great tourism uh, destination area. So by having this event just really helps jumps, you know, restart that industry after after some, some really tough years with covid um, and, and continues to put Boston on the map, right, on the worldwide map as, as a place that um, tourists around the world want to come and visit. And I think that's that's important, too. You know, we think about our city. I know all of us who live here think about Boston as probably the best city in, in, in America. And uh, we think we are a great city. And, you know, when, when push comes to shove, it's events like this, right, that continue to highlight that we're a great city, that, that showcase our great city. Um, and, and get visitors to come and, frankly, you know, go back to wherever they've, they've come from around the world and say, you know, how was the World Cup? Did you have fun? It's like, yeah, I went to Boston and, you know, this city and that city and that city. And it's like, well, what was your favorite part? And, you know, those people saying, well, I love Boston. Boston's amazing. If you ever get a chance, you should go. Um, 
you know, it sounds soft, but when you're talking about 500,000 people going back out into the world and telling people that Boston's a place you should visit, it's a great place, there's there's real tremendous future impact from the World Cup as well as, as sort of that immediate impact that we talked about. Absolutely. And I know there's no specific act, dates and so forth, but we're targeting June, July-ish? Yeah, it'll be a more typical World Cup in terms of you know, the timeline, so it's, it won't be this Winter World Cup uh, right. uh, in, in North America. So it'll be that sort of June, July time frame, but uh, that, that FIFA hasn't figured out all that work yet. We don't know that. FIFA doesn't know that, so... You know, over the next you know few years, they'll be they'll be laying all that out, and you know we'll be learning more about both what that's that master schedule looks like, and then of course how many matches we're going to get here in Boston, which again we don't we don't we don't know what that number is, um, but we'd like to have as many matches as we could get for sure. And the, let's rewind here back to the year 1994 when Boston played host of the World Cup. Foxborough had the tournament here in the United States for the first time, and a really cool story here, Brian, as well. Where at the old Foxborough Stadium in 1994 World Cup, you were a volunteer at the World Cup there. Can you talk about some of your memories with that? Yeah, so I worked. Um, I worked as part of the sort of usher security detail. Okay, um, sorry, I didn't mean to use that word, but okay. No, it's yeah. fine. Um, I, I, I did get paid. I wasn't a volunteer. I don't, okay. I, don't, I don't recall getting paid that much, but it was uh, <laughs> you know, me. I was in college at the time, and uh, uh, me and a bunch of friends and, and soccer players all, you know, they were recruiting on campus. They needed more help. And I remember us going there saying, so you're going to pay us to, to go to the World Cup games? And they said, well, you know, you're working and you're doing all this stuff. I'm like, right, right, but you're paying us to go to the World Cup games, right? And they're like, well, yeah. Like, we're in, we're in, we're in. Um, so a bunch of us signed up, uh, wound up working a bunch of the games here um, as, a, as a as an usher. I had this ridiculous uniform. It was like this sort of paramilitary beige uniform with a purple beret and um they were just trying to really fill out the stadium with as many you know staff as possible just to to uh to help with 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 the fans and 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 be ambassadors and uh, it was it was a ton of fun i got to see um you know argentina and uh, maradona's last games mm-hmm. um guys like simeone and batistuta were on that team uh italy spain quarterfinal here at, at, in foxborough uh, I was at that match and a few others involving Nigeria, Greece. Uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience for me. And uh, my first job in sports was uh, was working uh, working as a as an usher at the uh, at the twenty uh, excuse me the nineteen ninety four World Cup in Foxborough. Unbelievable! And yeah, you just mentioned Diego Maradona, maybe the greatest soccer player ever to step foot in the pitch. Uh, the two games he played at Foxborough Stadium uh, had a goal and a four nil win against Greece. Do you have any memories of seeing him suit up leading up to the match here in Foxborough? And how special was it to be connected to one of the greatest legends? You know, folks who, who sort of are not not my generation, soccer soccer fans or players, um, it's hard to understand sort of for someone like me growing up in the 80s and 90s, there really wasn't that much soccer. Um, even when the World Cup was on, um, you could watch some of the games, but I'm not even sure if you watched all the games, right? And um, we didn't have idols like the same way. We knew of these players, and you could get like a, a VHS highlight cassette, right, that you could watch and, and see things. But there wasn't the same or even anywhere close to the level of exposure you had. So when these players came to the U.S., being able to see them live, to watch that level of soccer live and in person for me was just tremendous. I mean, I, I – 
I actually remember quite specifically this goal that Batistuta scored in one of the matches. It probably was that match, actually. Yep. I think it was that Greece match. And he's right-footed. He comes down the left channel. He gets inside the 18. He opens up his body and just curls it to the far post. And I remember watching it just being like, I didn't even know you could do that. Like, I didn't know that was a, that was a thing. Right. We just hadn't seen that level of soccer um, here in the U.S. So for me, as a, as a, as a, as a player my whole life, to be able to get that close to it was really, really tremendous. Um, and uh, I actually have a picture up in my office now that um, was hanging up in the stadium from that match. And I was working right behind the bench, the, the Greek bench, and so the picture is of Batistuta, Maradona, and Diego Simeone celebrating a goal, and they're kind of hugging each other right in front of the bench. And in the background behind the bench, I'm, you can you can see me in that picture. That's and so it cool. Was, it was just hanging in the wall here at the stadium, and I saw it and was like, um, I'm taking that photo from my office because that's me. <laughs> uh, so it's hanging up right now in my office, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty incredible um, that that. It was just here, just hanging up in the stadium. And I saw it and it was like, I was at that game. And I'm like, actually, I'm in that photo. So this is uh, it's probably my my favorite sort of soccer memento I have over the years is this uh, this photo from the 94 World Cup with, you know, talk 19-year-old me just hanging out with uh, the three legends. And talk about going full circle. You're like volunteer to now cheer of 2026 World Cup here in Boston. That's amazing. Boston World Cup, uh, Boston soccer, rather, excuse me. But, Brian, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, 1994, well, as I mentioned last time I was here, and now it'll be 32 years later uh, in Boston. But, you know, something to think about here, I know you talked about with the the talent that you saw there. You really didn't see too much of it in the 80s and 90s growing up, the game of soccer. On the selection show last week for the FIFA World Cup uh, host cities in 2026, FIFA president Gianni Infantino, hot take at the end of the show where I am not going to rule it out. He said by the year 2026, soccer will be the number one sport in the United States. What do you think of that? We're pretty close right now. Uh, and, And I think, you know, you have to you have to look at soccer as a sport in terms of how many people play the sport, right? How many people watch the sport at different levels? You know, so we have professional men's leagues. We have multiple professional men's leagues, multiple professional women's leagues. Um, we have other leagues from around the world that are very popular in our country that people watch League MX and the Premier League. And then you've got the European Champions League. Now you've got the national teams, not only just the U.S. national team, but, you know, anyone who um, either – was born in another country or their family has origins in another country, right? Like I, I still sort of sidebar, you know, cheer for Italy when they're in European competitions because my family's uh, all of Italian descent. So, you know, you've got so many levels of the sport in this country. And I think when you think of some of the other sports and how people engage with that, whether it's watching on TV or going to live events, you, know, you generally have one pro league and college, right? And that's the, the extent of it. Um, but soccer is already – so ubiquitous across this country, and so many people watch it. 100 million soccer fans who watch league soccer alone in the United States right now. And so I, I think it's a sneaky sport where those of us who, who work in, the, in this professionally and understand all these metrics and what's going on see it. But I think the person who doesn't like soccer, right, doesn't necessarily understand what, what's happening because they're just not paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not that far off. 
And that doesn't mean MLS is going to be more popular than the NFL in 2026. But when you look at the sport as a whole and the various ways people engage with it and, and are fans of the sport or play the sport, um, I, I really don't think he's he's that far off. And, and if you don't see it, then you probably should start paying attention because, um, you know, we're here and, and, and only growing. Yeah, I agree. I, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And obviously the energy behind the 94 World Cup led to the launch of MLS and here the revolution, one of the charter members of MLS craft family, very influential in getting the league off the ground and, you know, MLS celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2026 with the World Cup coming here to the United States. Uh, that's just a huge feather in the cap for Boston and America in general. Oh, I mean, 100%. Again, in 94, when the World Cup game, we didn't have a, a, a top-flight league in this in this country. And so there was an understanding about what could happen with the sport and that, you know, the rest of the world can't be that wrong yeah. about about this game that they love so much. And uh, we really were able to launch the league and the Kraft family, the Hunt family, and, and Phil Anschwitz. Those, those three really had a vision that not only that time we're willing to, to, to go against, but, you know, there were some lean years in those first, those first few years of, of soccer in this country. And it, and it, and it really took those three families a huge leap of faith to say, no, we believe in this and, and we think it, 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 it has potential and doubling down on the sport and, and really um, pushing hard uh, for soccer not to, not to lose its place. And so, you know, when you see where we're at today, um, you know, I obviously work for the Kraft family and, and I'm close with them because of that. But as, as someone who's been a soccer fan my whole life, uh, I have seen sort of how, how this league and the sport has evolved. Um, I still have a great appreciation for them and the hunts and, and, and Phil Anschwitz for, you know, their vision and leadership for the sport and, and getting the sport to, to where it is today. Um, and, you know, with 2026, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's just going to, it's going to take it to a, to another level and we're already at another level, but um, it's, it's super exciting to think about what the next right 30 years of soccer to be in this country following 2026. It's going to be awesome. 2026 World Cup coming to Gillette Stadium. A lot more to work to do, Brian. I can't wait to be there for it. And uh, But still, the revolution in full action right now, midway through the season, as we said. In more than two months and eight games without a loss for the Revs. They are sixth place in the Eastern Conference standings, four points behind first place New York City FC. What do you think? Uh, last week, three results, eight days, seven-point week. Do you feel like that gives the team a little extra boost as we cross the halfway point? I guess a little bit. I mean, I, 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 we look at things a lot differently, I think, than, than, than folks sort of outside the walls, right? And you know, right, whether you're the team president, you're the coach, you're a player on a team, you kind of know your quality, whether you have it or whether you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, when, when you're not a good team or you don't have good quality, you're kind of going into every match hopeful that I maybe, you know, maybe we get a lucky bounce or, you know, we hold these guys or, you know, this is the one game that we're able to do this or that. I think we look at our team and, and we know how much quality is is here. And so I don't think we looked at it like, all right, we got some wins under our belt. Now we feel better. I, I think when we're not winning and, and, and not getting the results that, that we know we're capable of, we might, you know, get a little frustrated and, and, and 
turn internally to how do we fix that. But I don't think there's ever sort of that doubt where you need a morale boost of some some games. It's great to get the wins, but you know this group has been together for a few years now, so I think they know who they are. They they know their quality, and you know they work hard every day to to, to bring that quality out on on match day and and every day here at training. So. Um, I think when you don't have confidence, when you're not sure if you're a good team or not, then I think those wins probably mean a little bit more to the, the morale of the group. I think with our group, you know, they know that quality and and they're always working hard to to show that for for each other and for the fans. So uh, I'm not meaning to downplay the wins. The wins are great. We like to get them, um, but I don't think they're sort of needed from a morale standpoint when when you've got a group like this that's been together that has great leadership. Um, they're just trying to get the best out of each other and and, and getting the results certainly makes everyone feel a little bit better. Um, but I don't think they need that sort of from a morale standpoint. Uh, and then we'll get into the summer. You know, we've got um, we've got some some ability to bring some players in, and we're working hard right now to do just that. Um, so I think we've got a great team as it is on paper today. Um, but as always, you know, in a transfer window, we're looking to to make that better and improve upon that. And and that's you know what our what our sort of scouting and technical staff are are focused on right now. Yeah, and uh, you know, as you talk about the transfer window opening up in early July, uh, some of that work has already been done. Just uh, look at the recent acquisitions, uh, both reported as the multi-million dollar transfers. Midfielder Dylan Barrero and uh, goalkeeper Jorge Petrovic, both have really made quite an impact so far. Barrero, 20 years young, a goal and an assist in his first three starts. Petrovic, he has not lost a game through three starts What's your take on these two young individuals uh, for what they've shown over the last month here in New England? Yeah, I mean, the process of scouting takes place, you know, sometimes 18 months or longer before you see a player actually arrive at your club. So, you know, our, our scouting group um, is always, you know, they have a list that just about every position is, is guys they're following and tracking. And, you know, sometimes when you, you know, sell a player like a Tejan or, you, you know, in Matt's case, we had some advanced notice that, you know, we were selling him for the summer you know, then you can start ramping up those efforts and say, all right, here are the guys we've been tracking. Now we now we really need to make a move and you start you start doing that. I think, you know, um, so neither one of those players were sort of surprises to us. I mean, we, we like I said, you always have a bunch of players you're looking at, um, but we really like the quality both these guys bring to the table. You know, the time we brought Dylan in, we had three DP slots already filled. So, you know, the only way to sort of add a, a, a higher price acquisition was to use that. Uh, what's called the U22 slot that the league has for players 22 and under. Uh, so that that's why in that position we really targeted Dylan as a 20-year-old. We were able to to get us a, a high-quality player in here uh, for a fairly significant transfer fee. Uh, but we really love Dylan and and you know what he what he's adding already. As you mentioned, you know he's he's already contributing, but he's a player with tremendous upside. So um, you know I think that's a player when you know you're looking at a 20-year player, 20-year-old player like that. You know, you, you're expecting him for for what he is to contribute right now to the team, but you're also expecting him to be better next year and be better the year after that and the year after that as well, right? So, um, a lot of excitement around that. And with Georgie, again, uh, you know, we we were looking for goalkeepers. Uh, he's a little bit younger. He's not as young as Dylan, uh, but it's really about quality in that position. And, and we, from what we saw uh, and what we looked at, uh, we recognized there was some real quality in him. And, uh, and and he was very high on our target list and uh, we're able to get him in here and, and we're, we're really excited to, to have him. And I think fans are already starting to see, you know, some of his, some of his qualities play out. So really excited about those moves. 
And, and a Reader's Digest version of the world of transfers for folks that may not be familiar with it, of course, uh, the, the recent transfers, Adam Buxa, Matt Turner, Tejan Buchanan last year, and we talk about the additions of Barrero and Petrovic. Uh, again, could you just kind of fill everyone, uh, like, what's best, what are the right moves for both the club and the player, and a couple things that may go on behind the scenes on here? Sure, yeah, it's very unique because um, – you know, you can't really trade players around the world because, right, to send a player to Belgium and then get a player back from Belgium and maybe there's no players that want to come to the U.S. or whatever, it, it just wouldn't work. Uh, so in soccer, we've sort of simplified it by by using currency um, to basically do trades. So I wouldn't look at it as – it's kind of like trades because you're going to give us money for a player and then we'll use that money to go get a player maybe from a different league or somewhere else, right? So we, we sold Tejan to, to a club in Belgium. They gave us money for Tejan. Well, then we took that money and then we're going out to a club in Brazil and buying a player from a club in Brazil, right? So um, that's sort of the way the transactions play out. Uh, it's important to have a, a great partnership and understanding what your players and what their goals are and what you're looking to do. And, and that's you know, much more so in soccer than other sports because it's a global economy for these players. Um, you know, Players may have different ideas of where they want to go and how they want to get there. It's not as simple as, why did you leave my team to get traded for another team. I think when players move within MLS, that's that sort of can be evaluated similar to other leagues in the U.S., but you can't really look at, you know, a club in MLS selling a player to Europe the same way you can look at, you know, a club in Major League Baseball trading a player to another team in Major League Baseball. It's a very different dynamic. So um, with many players, you know, you're having this conversation with the players or their agents when you're signing them. You know, what's the player's goal? What do they want to achieve? Um, and then particularly with younger players, right, like a guy like Adam, when we signed him, uh, we knew that Adam wanted to come here. He wanted to increase his value in the market. Uh, he was very interested in going back to Europe uh, at some point in his career, but looked at this as a great opportunity for him to grow as a player. Uh, and, and I think both parties really benefited from, from, from that, right? Adam came in um, to our club, uh, again, under a significant transfer, but was able to go back uh, to a top league in Europe in France and, uh, that was really important to him and, and what he wants to accomplish for his career and heading into a World Cup. And, you know, we had a player that contributed really well for the Revs. And so uh, what we're seeing now and, and what the goal is with players like that is to get those players in here, right, and show other players that, hey, you know, we have the ability to to move players to the, these types of clubs. And so, again, a player like Barrero comes in and sees what we did with Tejan and thinks, well, this is a club I want to go to because they have the ability to advance my career to a place where I might want to go, right? But a player like Georgie, He's looking at us saying, well, he just sold a, a goalkeeper to Arsenal. Uh, that sounds pretty good to me. That's a club that, you know, I, I'd be willing to consider. So, again, it's not as simple as, you know, players come to clubs just because they like the club or the training center, the stadium or the city or the amount of money they're getting. You know, they're also thinking about what's their potential next move and is this a club that helps me get that. And so, so for some players, that's maybe the most important thing they're looking at. And to be able to now have this track record of, of moving some players to, to some big clubs uh, that, that means a lot for the inbound, and it's really what we're seeing helping us with a lot of our inbound conversations with players. And and that's that's certainly not a bad place to be as a club. It's a really good place to be as a club, right? You still need those veterans. You need those guys, you know, like a Carlos who's re-signed with us, like a Gustavo who's re-signed with us. So you're not trying to have 11 players sold every year and bring in 11 new players, right? So um, the challenge as a club is to always have that balance of, you know, really high-level players, right? We've got MVPs on this team now. Uh, best 11 players on this team that you can keep for a long time 
and be that real strong foundation in your club, but also have players that, you know, you can get really high level players that know that you're a club that can advance their careers and getting those guys as well. And, and right now we, I think we're in a pretty good balance of that and we're going to continue to try to do that. This is awesome, obviously, for you know the revolution, as you mentioned, to have players want to come here. And we've already seen the excitement with Barrero and Petrovic, as I mentioned, and you know Buxa, who the chance they'll be playing in the World Cup in 2022, and even Matt Turner as well to possibly be starting for the U.S. Men's National Team. Uh, quite a story for Matt Turner. We said uh, farewell to him this past week at Gillette Stadium final Revs match for him, but you got to be really excited to be cheering on Matt Turner as he looks to win the starting job for the U.S. men's national team? Yeah, I think, again, because of the way the ecosystem in soccer works, it's it's very different with players that have maybe moved on for your club than, you know, a guy that you know, held out in free agency and then signed for a different team for more money and, you know, you're upset with the player and the fans are upset with the player. You know, we, we've had a lot of real positive movement um, from our club in the, last, in the last year. And so I'll be watching the World Cup. And I'll be supporting Tejan Buchanan when he plays for Canada. I'll be supporting Adam when he plays for Poland. And I'll most certainly be supporting Matt uh, when he plays for the, for the U.S. So, um, again, when you have this type of relationship with your players and this, and this positive movements in and out of your club, uh, it, it's a real relationship. And I'd expect most of our fans to feel, you know, if not all of our fans, to feel the same way about those three players and, and supporting them at the World Cup and, and in all their future endeavors. So, it should be a really exciting World Cup for, for, for us. And, um, you know, for all three of those guys, it's form is going to be the most important thing for them heading into the World Cup, right? Are they playing for, well for their clubs? Um, are, they, are they, you know, outperforming the other people in their position? So I know those national team managers are going to watch them in the games that they're playing for their clubs, but they're also going to watch them in those, in those training camps prior to the World Cup. And, and the, there's a few friendlies or, or competitions prior to the World Cup depending on, you know, where, where, where what country you're, you're, you're playing from. Um, those are going to matter a lot to all those players, right? I think of the three, Tejan, I would guess, is more of a locked-in, you know, starter for, for Canada. Uh, I think Adam's got a real shot at a starting position if he plays well in France. And um, there's a little bit of a formation thing there, too, in Poland, you know, what formation they're going to play. You know, they play with one or two forwards. And, you know, if they play with one forward, they, they – they have who many believe is the best forward in the world in Robert Lewandowski. So uh, that's a little that's a little tougher. If they're going to only play at one forward, but I think if they play with two, Adam got a real shot at at, at starting some matches uh, for that team. And and you know I've said this for years. I still believe it. You know I think Matt Turner, frankly by a wide margin, is the best goalkeeper we have in the U.S. men's national team pool right now. Um, so you know in my mind he should be our starter um, without question in the World Cup. Uh, you look at his performance, you know, in MLS the last few seasons, um, way better than than any other goalkeeper present or past that's that's been in this league. Um, and then you look at his performances with the U.S. Men's National Team over the last couple of years, and it's it's hard to ask for a lot more than what Matt's given the U.S. National Team, right? So, uh, I really hope uh, he's in the net both for for Matt and everything he's worked to achieve. And frankly, selfishly, as a U.S. Men's National Team, I want Matt in the goal because I think he gives us the best chance of of winning at the World Cup, and, you know, you're going to be in some really tough games. Hopefully we're, we're, we're playing a lot of games at the World Cup and we're in some knockout games against some, you know, those top five, top six club, uh, national teams in the world. And I think when you're in those games, you know, you don't need a keeper that can make all the saves he's supposed to make. You need a keeper who makes the saves he's not supposed to make. And, and throughout his career, 
that I think is Matt's best attribute as a goalkeeper is that he makes the saves that you're not supposed to make. And, and, you know, for a team like the U S who, you know, is whatever you want to call it, a top 20 team in the league, but, but not a top five or six team in the world, a league team in the world. Um, if you're going to go really far, you're going to need a guy in net who, who makes the saves that um, he's not supposed to make. And, and Matt's that guy, frankly, and I'm really looking forward to it and, and hope we get a lot of Matt Turner in, uh, in the World Cup. Good stuff. And final thought here, Brian, as we get ready for Sunday's match at Vancouver, 17th game of the season, puts the revs at the halfway point, back in a playoff spot, striking distance of the number one seed. Where do you see the revolution heading here in the second half of 2022 and a couple of quick objectives the team has for itself over the next three months? You know, we don't really do sort of long objectives, right? I mean, our objective right now is to win in Vancouver. Uh, and, and then our objective after that will be to win on July 3rd at home, right? Mm-hmm. And so on and so forth. So um, it, it's really doesn't help you at all to sort of think about where we want to be at the end of the season, right? We want to be the number one seed. We want to win the supporter shield. That's where we want to be at the end of the season. If we do that, then we're set up really well for a great playoff run. Um, but, you know, in order to do that, we need, we need to win our next game. And then after that, we need to win our next game and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think we just look at it in that manner and, and just prepare week in, week out for our next opponent. Um, but, you know, we saw – everyone knows our quality, what we did last year, uh, and, and we feel like we've got, you know, just as much quality this year. And so, you know, for our club, it's really about going out every game winning. I don't think we're going to face an opponent um, where we get on the field and feel like we can't win the match. And so that's what it's about every every week. All right. Well, a couple of home matches in July, July 3rd to kick off Independence Day weekend. Going to be a lot of fun in Foxborough and then late July as well. So uh, hopefully get more fans out. I know you said attendance has been really good, and I noticed that too. It does look really good from what we've seen and want to keep getting more people out to support the revolution in 2022. Yeah, great support this week, this year. Our last home game crowd was tremendous when we took that 2-1 lead. Uh, and then, yeah, July 3rd, our next home game should be a lot of fun. We'll have some fireworks to celebrate the 4th of July. Nice. It's, uh, it's our Salute to Heroes Night, so we'll be doing a lot of activations um, you know, to honor those who, who serve, whether that's our, our country, obviously, but also those who serve uh, on a more local level and, and first responders and folks like that. So uh, it should be a great, fun night here at Toilette Stadium. And like we said, everyone loves fireworks. So you know, come out, watch the Revs win, fireworks on the field, fireworks off the field. It should be, uh, it should be a great night. Hey, thanks again for doing this, Brian. And once again, congratulations with the World Cup in 2026. A real exciting time for all Revolution fans. Yeah, thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Once again, my thanks to Revolution President Brian Bolello. Give him a follow on Twitter. He's at RevsPrez, R-E-V-S-P-R-E-Z. Revolution in Vancouver this Sunday night against the Whitecaps at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. They return to Foxborough Sunday, July 3rd, 7.30 p.m. to take on FC Cincinnati. Now, as Brian mentioned in the interview, there will be a tribute to military and first responders as well as post-game fireworks on the July 3rd match as we honor America during the Independence Day holiday weekend. For tickets to that match and all other home matches, visit revolutionsoccer.net or call 877-GET-REVS. My name is Mike Riley. Follow me on Twitter at Sarge985. The Sports Hub account is at 985thesportshub. And the audio pages website is at Soccercast96. Thanks again for listening. 
and go Revs.